0: Welcome to The Airwave, West Yorkshire internal medicine teaching collaborative podcasts in association with Airedale General Hospital and Bradford Royal Infirmary, the Chief Registrar Programme Initiative. On today's podcast, I'm going to be talking about a topic that's near and dear to my heart and that is the topic of -of point-of-care ultrasound and I'm going to focus on a key area of -of point-of-care ultrasound and that is venous congestion. So hello everyone, it's Mark from the Airwave Podcast. I'm the Chief Registrar at Airedale General Hospital. And due to a bit of a scheduling mishap, I'm on my own today, but I thought I'd still use the opportunity to talk about a topic that I care quite deeply about and use this opportunity to do a little bit of education on a very focused aspect to medical care. For those of you who haven't met me, I'm a big advocate for the use of point-of-care ultrasound. I'm rarely seen about a ultrasound probe in my hand. And for me, it's become a key part of my assessment of a patient to take the skills that point of care ultrasound give to the clinician to inform my clinical judgment, to ensure that I make better decisions for the patients and ultimately provide the best care possible. In many ways, this passion started when I was a FY2 working in the emergency department with some fantastic mentors who got me grounded in the basics of point of care ultrasound and then expanding my reach and my knowledge through the help of mentors throughout my internal medicine training to a point where I'm quite comfortable doing a variety of different scans today. And the range of scans that I perform from renal, ultrasound to hepatic ultrasound to eyeball ultrasound and echocardiograms all help inform my clinical judgment on the shop floor to ensure that the care I'm giving is targeted and I know what I'm treating. Perhaps one of the first applications of of ultrasound I became aware of as a trainee was the use of the curvilinear or the phased array echo probe to determine the size of the area of being a caver. This came on the back of a variety of different echocardiographic studies that showed the correlation between the dilation of the IIBC and its characteristics with the central venous pressure. In reality, the information one gets from a dilated IVC is no different to that of a jugular venous pressure. And the ability to perform a good jugular venous pressure assessment at the bedside is vital to treating a variety of different congestive disorders. As time has gone forward and the knowledge in point of care ultrasound has become more advanced, we've developed more understanding about how we can see venous congestion in different organs, possibly by using Doppler waveform to give us an accurate idea of the movement of blood flow throughout certain structures. This has led to the development of a variety of different protocols that can be used to assess one's venous congestion using ultrasound. But perhaps the most well-known of these And perhaps the newest of these modalities is the VEXUS ultrasound score protocol. For those unfamiliar with VEXUS, it stands for venous congestion evaluation using ultrasound. The VEXUS protocol combines several key metrics in the ultrasound assessment of a patient to help build a picture of the degree of congestion in a variety of different organs. Although one may start using the inferior vena cava and determining its degree of distension, We quickly move forward into the hepatic vein, the portal vein and the renal vein, looking at the characteristic movement of blood and comparing that to what we would expect to see in a patient with no congestion. As we move along each organ system, we see changes consistent with a degree of venous congestion. And when we combine all these metrics together, we're able to give ourselves a reasonably accurate assessment of the patient's central venous pressure, but also of the downstream effect within the organs and how they have changed due to the degree of venous congestion. I think it's best to put these type of protocols through a case-based discussion, and therefore I'm going to use a case that I came across several months ago and talk a bit about it and put the VEXUS protocol into some clinical relevance. Imagine, if you will, a young patient, a patient in their 50s, who presents to the emergency department with a new acute kidney injury, an AKI stage 3 who appears generally unwell but has no other specific symptoms. The patient notes they've been passing less urine and feeling fatigued and generally unwell, but have been adherent with their medications and otherwise have felt well with no temperatures and no other systemic symptoms. You note from the past medical of history that the patient has a significant heart failure history with a known dilated cardiomyopathy with an ejection fraction of approximately 25%. There have been no recent changes to their medications, and they are felt to be appropriately titrated for the patient's condition. In this case, the patient also has a CRTT device, but that's not really relevant to the outcomes or the details of the case. You're asked to go and see this patient on the shop floor with the new diagnosis, of AKI-3, and there's a lot of information to take on board. But fundamentally, the most important thing is you have to understand the clinical context and try and make an accurate diagnosis of why the kidneys are acutely failing. One would, and as the team that I received a patient from, would assume the patient's likely to be dehydrated because they've not been eating, drinking as well, because they're generally feeling unwell. This bias was backed by the ongoing use of diuretics in a patient who wasn't feeling well and was drinking less, which led to the bias that the patient may well be suffering from hypovolemic acute kidney injury. A brief renal ultrasound assessment shows no evident hydronephrosis, and the patient exam does not particularly point in any direction in the dark room the patient is assessed in. The blood tests you start to get back are all quite concerning. You notice a very high potassium, potassium of 7.0. The urea is 45, creatinine is 600, and the sodium has fallen to 125. When you assess the patient and check their blood pressure, the blood pressure is currently reading at 80 over 40. The heart rate is set at 70 beats per minute and the ECG shows no particular changes to prior ECGs that have been performed. The patient's chest x-ray looks a little bit congested, but it's difficult to say. There may be some small pleural effusions, but generally there's no large pneumonia, and there's no significant pleural effusions that point towards the patient being significantly congested. Due to the body habitus, it's difficult to see jugular venous pressure. With this information in hand, a pre-diagnosis bias of the patient who was likely to be suffering from hypovolemia. The emergency department team started the patient on slow intravenous fluids and admitted them to medicine with a plan to hold the nephrotoxic medications, treat the hypokalemia that was present, with the intention of clearing out the patient's potassium, performing calciuresis using further IV fluids to increase urine output. In this case, let's say we're seeing this patient approximately four to five hours after the index admission. And at this point, the patient is still aneuric. despite having received over a litre of fluid. There's a trending up oxygen requirement. The patient still looks reasonably comfortable. And on repeat examination, not an awful lot appears to have changed. Perhaps the chest is now slightly crackly. But the plan for the emergency department team was to continue on for slow IV fluid and accept that some degree of heart failure may be exacerbated by abuse of intravenous fluids. Perhaps it was the cardiologist in me that thought something wasn't right about this case. The patient was taking their diuretics, but the diuretic doses were not that significant. An injection fraction of 30% is not good, but it's also not terrible compared to all the patients that we look after. And something about this patient just didn't sit right with me. So I decided to take a further assessment methodology and really get to the bottom of what was going on. Straight away when I took the ultrasound probe to the patient, I immediately began to get the sense that perhaps we didn't really know what we were treating using the linear probe and placing the linear probe on the neck where one would expect to see the jugular vein as pressurized or a very dilated external jugular vein, indicating that the JVP, although not visible due to the patient's body habitus, was likely to be quite elevated. On completing the renal ultrasound and confirming no hydronephrosis, looking forward into the inferior vena cava, I note a significantly distended inferior vena cava that has no evidence of collapse when the patient breathes in or breathes out. As I place my curvilinear probe now into the liver and get the middle hepatic vein, I can start to appreciate that the hepatic vein Doppler and the colour mode is showing significant reversal of the SD wave, which is something we'll talk about in a moment. The portal vein, which is difficult to find as a structure but appears quite echo bright, is highlighted in the centre of the patient's liver. And this structure is very pulsatile, with a clear pulsatility to the portal vein being an abnormal finding. Last but not least, I go back to those renal veins that I was looking at previously, and I place my post-wave Doppler on top of the renal parenchyma and notice that although we have a clear arterial flow to the kidney, which one would expect the patient has cardiac output, we'd expect there to be some degree of renal flow, I can't see any continuous venous flow from the kidney. What I am seeing is intermittently a venous flow from the kidney, but only after a significant arterial pulsation goes through the kidney. To complete that assessment, I look at the bladder. The bladder is empty with the catheter sat inside. Looking down at the catheter bag, there's no urine, despite what is now about a liter of IV fluid that's passed into the patient. And this is all quite worrying. A patient who's been provided IV fluid, who has signs with the Vexus ultrasound of being congested, who isn't passing urine, is gradually having an increase in oxygen requirement, all worrying features, but perhaps we're not treating a hypovolemic acute kidney injury. What we're treating is someone who is venous congested and needs urgent diuresis. Despite the patient's use of diuretics, I elect to order a urine sodium test can be really quite useful in identifying patients who have hypovolemic acute kidney injury. As one would expect, the urine sodium starts to fall as the body tries to pull back as much fluid as possible from the filtrate to try and maintain as much blood volume as possible. The urine sodium in this patient is very much in the middle ground. I suspect that reflects the patient's ongoing diuretic use. It's evident that there's some medications here that I need to stop. The spironolactone would be silly to continue in a patient who has an increasing hyperkalemia. But do I stop for diuretics? I can see evidence here that the patient's congested. Are we treating the wrong thing? In the days and weeks to come, it would turn out that continuing with the intravenous fluids was the wrong option. The patient became more congested. The renal function did not improve, and only after several days, of different consultancy and the patient having changed my plan. We eventually go back to starting the patient on intravenous diuresis, and the patient begins to pass quite large volumes of urine after a breakthrough bolus. There's a lot of concerns about starting this patient on intravenous diuretics because the blood pressure is so low. but Low blood pressure is not a new problem to us in cardiology, particularly when patients who on a high dose of ACE inhibitors, and particularly if they become venous congested, develop an acute kidney injury, there's a lot of medication within their system that's going to be leading to hypotension. Not to say that a state of hypotension is not imminently dangerous. The risk of acute tubular necrosis here is significant, given a low blood pressure and venous congestion. One can only imagine the degree of hypoxia that the Nephrons could be suffering in this type of disease state. I'm glad to say that with time, this patient began to recover. And although there was a significant deterioration in their renal function following this episode and likely progression of their known cardiorenal syndrome, fundamentally, we were able to help the patient through this acute illness. And in due course, they've made a full recovery and I've been thankfully able to go back home. At this point, it's important we take a moment and reflect on cardiorenal syndrome and NOD, to the several different types of cardiorenal syndrome that patients can present with. Each of these have potentially quite different outcomes for a patient. A type 1 cardiorenal syndrome being that of heart failure leading to the acute kidney injury. And that can be through venous congestion and is likely what we're seeing in this case. For type two cardiorenal patient, which is that chronic heart failure and low cardiac output state leading to chronic kidney disease is a very different type of presentation and not really what we're seeing here. We can see a type 3 presentation of cardiorenal syndrome where the acute kidney injury and the failure of the renal system to excrete urine leads to a presentation of heart failure. But that's a different set of symptoms and a different disease process. To the same extent, we can see the renal system impact the heart through CKD, where the inability to, over a longer period of time, produce adequate filtrate leads to chronic heart failure. And it's worth an honorable mention, but type 5 cardiorenal syndrome, which is more of a complication of heart failure and CKD combined, is also worth a mention. But in reality, it's not what's going on in this case. And there's a reasonably rare and difficult form of cardiorenal syndrome to detect. So what are we dealing with here? Well, in reality, we're probably dealing with type 1 acute cardiorenal syndrome, but it's not through hypovolemia, which is where people tend to be biased in thinking about acute kidney injury. This is acute kidney injury due to a venous congestion problem, and we've demonstrated that through our examination. It's even more notable if I start to add important other examination findings that other colleagues were able to pick up. The key things such as the edema, which the patient rarely suffers from, the jugular venous pressure buried behind the adipose tissue in the neck, which is bulging away and is in all likelihood a really big indicator of the underlying problem here. That same large body habitus makes it really difficult to listen to the chest accurately, And very small little plural effusions that we may have written off. They may make a bit more sense now. So let's talk about VEXUS and let's talk about the focus of today's podcast. I've already explained the vernacular, venous exus ultrasound. Let's talk about the key points. So how do you perform a VEXUS assessment? First off, we tend to start with the inferior vena cava because this is going to help us link into a variety of different key structures. You can use either the phased array or the curvilinear probe, but placing our probe onto the abdomen, we're looking through the liver in the sub position and pointing it towards the heart, trying to find the base of the right agent, which is going to lead us to the inferior vena cava. We're doing this of a probe in a sagittal position, trying to identify the patient superior to inferior to help us make an accurate assessment of the longitudinal nature of the inferior vena cava. What we're expecting to see is a long structure not pulsatile like the aorta, the two are very closely associated, and it's important that you ensure you find the right structure. There's no point assessing the aorta in a patient with this type of pathology. What we're looking for is, in theory, vena cava, a clear connection to the right atrium, and we're also looking for the middle hepatic vein or left hepatic vein, depending on your probe position, draining directly into the IVC. The IVC can be in a variety of different sizes. In the congestive patient, the IVC can be very easy to see. If you can't see the inferior vena cava, that's normally an indication that the inferior vena cava is somewhat collapsed. And in patients who are particularly sick with very low central venous pressures, it may be extremely difficult to see the inferior vena cava. When one has found the inferior vena cava, the next key step is to perform your N-mode 2 to 3 centimeters below the high of the right atrium. And look at the collapsibility, look at the flow characteristics and the pattern within the inferior vena cava. If when a patient takes a big breath in or sniffs, there's a significant collapse, that suggests your central venous pressure may not be as high as you think. Particularly in young patients, the IVC can appear more dilated but still collapse very easily just due to the changes in the structures of a younger person. As people age and the organs change, you may find that the sniff test doesn't elucidate the same degree of collapse. And it's important then that we look to our further assessment modalities. If the inferior vena cava is less than 1.5 centimetres, the patient is very unlikely to be congested. Although you have to put this in the clinical context. If the inferior vena cava is somewhere between 1.5 to 2 centimetres, it may be worth performing some further investigation. But if the IVC is over 2 centimetres in most patients, you need to proceed to the next steps to determine if venous congestion is present or not. The next step, having performed the inferior vena cava assessment, is to move to the hepatic vein. The hepatic vein should be visible throughout the liver parenchyma, but getting a clear view of it in its longitudinal position may be quite challenging. The best way to do this is to start in the right place. If you're starting up in the right upper quadrant, the all likelihood you're likely to see the middle hepatic vein draining into the inferior vena cava. It may take some fanning through the liver, to find one of the veins and then bring yourself into line by moving the probe over the top of the patient. When you find a middle hepatic vein, put some color mode on it and you're already going to get an idea if you're seeing venous congestion, a strong red coloration, red being towards the probe, suggesting there is a significant amount of blood moving back towards the probe in the middle hepatic vein. That is not a normal process. What we should see primarily is blue waveforms within the middle hepatic vein as blood continuously falls into the inferior vena cava in the non-congested state. As the degree of congestion increases, what we see is a change to the S and the D wave. It's difficult to talk about this so much on the podcast, but if you're seeing erratic waveforms that go up and down, what you're seeing is, as systole occurs, significant tricuspid regurgitation and an inability to pump the blood through the pulmonary circulation. Leading to a significant amount of blood backflowing through the right into the IVC and therefore into the hepatic vein system. This is how we get our hepatic venous congestion in patients who develop congestive hepatopathy. And it's an important disease to be able to recognize, but also important in the diagnosis of tricuspid regurgitation. SD reversal can be quite erratic and can appear as the waveform moving up and down with each pulsation. The normal hepatic Doppler would see systole pull blood into the right atrium as the right ventricle collapses down and contracts with a mild diastolic wave that again sees a period of blood flow moving towards the heart as the atrium and the ventricle contracts and the blood moves and fills the right ventricle and right atrium, respectively. If we're seeing signs of hepatic venous congestion, in the sense we're seeing SD reversal, we need to move on to the portal vein. The portal vein is actually reasonably simple to image and appears as an echo bright structure within the mid section of the hepatic system. It's well-walled because of its role from picking up GI blood into the liver for the liver parenchyma to filter. One key component to identifying the portal vein will be that it has a red flow, but it's not pulsatile moving towards the probe. The portal vein, prior to the portal vein branches, the blood flow essentially moves anteriorly. So we'd expect to see a red coloration to this blood flow. To see portal vein reversibility is quite rare. When we identify the portal vein, a thick, echo echobite structure with a continuous red flow towards the probe, placing our post-wave Doppler on, we'll see one of several things. In the non-congested patient, one would expect to see a very low pulsatility. As we're not expecting pulsatility within the liver, the resistance within the liver should be reasonably low. However, if with each heartbeat, what we're seeing is as a result of hepatic vein congestion, the liver fill with fluid we'll notice that the degree of portal vein flow reduces during systole. And this is quite an important concept. And pulsatility of a portal vein in a context of congestion suggests that the liver is significantly congested. We're looking for a pulsatility index of over 50%, and you may well see pulsatility to normal flow to almost zero flow during highly congested states. In terms of determining your pulsatility index, that's something that you perform by looking at the pulse wave Doppler readout over time. Last but not least is the intrarenal venous Doppler assessment, and perhaps this is the key point to accurately determine congestion. As in most patients that we see significant venous congestion, it will be the kidneys that we're really trying to interrogate. We may have already been to the kidneys as part of our assessment of hydronephrosis as a point of care ultrasound assessment for a patient with acute kidney injury 2 or 3. In this assessment, what we're doing is putting the color mode over top of the renal parenchyma and hopefully seeing a mixture of different waveforms. What we're hopefully seeing as we put color mode onto the renal parenchyma is a red towards flow with a pulsatile nature and then seeing a venous flow away from a probe which is consistent and consistently blue as it moves away from us. It's important that we capture a segment of the renal parenchyma that's closer to us rather than too far away as we may see this flow reversed if we're not able to capture the right segment. We're looking for the segment closest to the probe. As we place our pulsed wave Doppler or even continuous wave Doppler onto the renal parenchyma, we'll see one of several things. Understandably, we should see some degree of intrarenal arterial flow. And that would be seen by a sharp pulsation on the towards axis of the pulsed or continuous wave Doppler. However, what we may start to see, and is a really key finding in patients with renal congestion, is a discontinuous monophasic flow that's only occurring in diastole following the systolic phase of the arterial pulsation in the renal system. As one can imagine, the increased pressure within the kidney due to the arterial pulsation increases the intraparenchymal pressure. And that leads to a increased propensity for venous flow to leave the kidney. And this is a really important mark of renal congestion. It's about the most sensitive marker that we have, as it stands, for detecting renal congestion. So, when we put all these markers together the dilated inferior vena cava, the abnormal hepatic vein Doppler with SD reversal, a pulsatile portal vein, and a discontinuous monophasic flow within the renal vein Doppler we have lots of evidence that this patient is behaving from a hemodynamic point of view as someone suffering from significant venous congestion and in this patient that's what we found and the answer here was performing diuresis. We can assume the central venous pressure is already high due to the presence of the dilated inferior vena cava. One must always think when providing intravenous fluid what the aim of the intravenous fluid is. Intravenous fluid is there to provide maintenance or to increase the central venous pressure to increase cardiac output through the right heart. If the central venous pressure is already raised, the benefit of further fluid is likely to be reasonably limited. In patients showing significant congestion, there can be a really small interval of time to provide diuresis before the renal system becomes so congested that the diuretic medication will barely filter into the renal parenchyma to provide that loop diuretic effect, and these patients can become rapidly very difficult to treat. So Vexus point of care ultrasound is a really useful tool in these patients, and it's something that It's likely to become a modality more common in the future. As it stands at the moment, the research literature is limited and we're developing more and more ultrasound understanding and also developing applications for these patients where perhaps we didn't know there was application before. It seems somewhat remiss not to develop such a skill when these patients are so difficult to assess and at least inform yourself of what direction the patient may be travelling in. There's evidence that performing vexus ultrasound provides useful context when seeing a patient on a day-to-day basis, but in the instance here, being able to quickly make a determination about which of the cardiorenal syndromes you're treating, if you are treating hypovolemia or you're treating congestion, makes a significant difference on the amount of time a patient will spend in their disease state, and ultimately can be the difference between life and death in a majority of the patients with significant cardiac disease. So I hope that's been useful. It's mainly me just talking at the screen, going through some content that I've produced previously. If you're interested in pursuing these types of scans, there's currently no methodology. There's no teaching mechanism for such a type of scan, and it's something I'm looking to develop within my local trust. If you have any questions, feel free to ask, and let us know at our email address if you want to find out a little bit more about the type of scanning mentioned here. But otherwise, thank you for your time. And have a lovely day. Thank you for listening to The Airwave. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and learned something new. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to our podcast on your favourite platform and look out for our content on YouTube.